We'll hear argument next in case 19-635, Donald Trump versus Cyrus Vance. Mr. Seculo? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. No county district attorney in our nation's history has issued criminal process against the sitting president of the United States, and for good reason. The Constitution does not allow it. Temporary presidential immunity is constitutionally required by Article II, and accordingly, the Supremacy Clause defeats any authority the DA has under state law as to the president. The Second Circuit is wrong and should be reversed. If not reversed, the decision weaponizes 2,300 local DAs. An overwhelming number of them are elected to office and are thereby accountable to their local constituencies. The decision would allow any DA to harass, distract, and interfere with the sitting president. It subjects the president to local prejudice that can influence prosecutorial decisions and to state grand juries who can then be utilized to issue compulsory criminal process in the form of subpoenas targeting the president. This is not mere speculation. It is precisely what has taken place in this case and with this subpoena we challenge. In the argument just concluded, we asserted that the subpoenas did not serve a legitimate legislative purpose, and they were burdensome. Yet the DA copied almost verbatim the House Oversight Committee subpoena with an additional 13 words which seek the president's tax returns. How revealing. The exact same language utilized by two congressional committees would subsequently be copied by the New York County District Attorney covering the exact same documents and sent to the exact same recipients, yet purportedly for two completely different reasons. Under Article Two or the heightened scrutiny standard under Nixon, the subpoena we challenge today cannot survive. As the Second Circuit concluded, and the DA represents, the president's being investigated for potential criminal violations in a state grand jury proceeding with a local DA issuing coercive criminal process against the president. This he cannot do. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, counsel, for all that, you don't argue that the grand jury cannot investigate the president, do you? We did not seek to uh, have an injunction, as was the case involving Vice President Agnew, in enjoining the grand jury. We have targeted the utilization of the temporary immunity here to the subpoena. That's correct. Well, in other words, it's okay for the grand jury to investigate, except it can't use the traditional and most effective device that grand juries have typically used, which is the subpoena. It can't use a subpoena targeting the president. And under his Article II responsibilities and the Supremacy Clause, that, is our view, would be inappropriate and unconstitutional. So we have not challenged the... I don't, I don't understand... Your theory, uh, in terms of distraction and all that, would seem to go much farther than resisting the subpoena. I don't know why you don't resist the investigation in its entirety, or why your theory wouldn't lead to that. Well, our, our position is that criminal process against the president, and that's what we're talking about, that's what's before the court, criminal process targeting the president is a violation of the Constitution. We did not seek to enforce an injunction or seek an injunction against the grand jury investigating the situation with the president. You focus on the distraction uh, uh, to the president, but I, yes. I don't know why uh, in, in Clinton versus Jones, we were not persuaded uh, that the distraction in that case uh, meant that discovery could not uh, uh, proceed. And, uh, you know, uh, th there are different things that distract different people, but I would have thought 
the discovery in a case like Clinton versus Jones, even though civil, would be uh, distracting, as you argue the grand jury proceedings are here. Well, Clinton versus Jones, of course, was in federal court. This is in state court. Clinton versus Jones was a civil case. This is a criminal case. And as this court noted on page 691 of its opinion, if, in fact, the Clinton versus Jones case had originated in a state court proceeding, it would raise different issues than separation of powers, uh, concerns over local prejudice. And in footnote 13, this court said that any direct control by a state court over the president may implicate concerns that are different. They need to branch uh, disputes under separation of powers. So it would be a... Ms. Thomas? Uh, yes, counsel. Um, just um, a couple of questions. I'm uh, interested in whether or not you can point us to some express language at the founding or during the ratification process that uh, provides for this immunity. Well, uh, there, there's a couple. Uh, there was a colloquy between Vice President, well, ultimately Vice President Adams and Senator Ellsworth, where they talked about process against the president, and they took the position that any process against the president would be constitutionally problematic. Thomas Jefferson, of course, uh, wrote uh, in the letters he had regarding subpoenas that were issued in the Byrd trial that allowing uh, local magistrates to bander about a sitting president from north to south and east to west uh, would interfere with the president's responsibilities. And as this court just in the previous argument just stated, the burdensome nature of this is categorical. It's not, you can't just look at the one subpoena. It is the potential for 2,300 DAs, or just 1% of them, 23 DAs issuing process against the president. But the concern over interference from our founding with the president's responsibilities uh, was discussed, and that's why in the Constitution there's process to deal with it. Does it make a difference when a subpoena goes to a third party? Uh, certainly not here. Uh, number one, they, the respondents have either forfeited or waived it. They have conceded in their brief that they, they are seeking the president's documents. These are the president's documents. He is the real party in interest, and he has the burden, including review with his counsel over any existing privileges and what these documents might entail. Thank you. Thank you, Justice Thomas. Justice Ginsburg? Uh, we have said in the grand jury context that the public has a right to every man's evidence. Is it your position that that is saved for the president? Every man's evidence, save for persons protected by privilege, and there is no privilege involved here. These are uh, non-privileged, non-confidential papers. So is the, the grand jury right to every man's evidence Exclusive of the president, every man except the president? That's one question. And then I wanted you to answer specifically. Um, Paula Jones has held that the president was not immune from civil suits for conduct occurring before he took office. If Paula Jones had sued in state court rather than federal court, would Clinton have had absolute immunity? Well, this, uh, to the second question first, if I might, Justice Ginsburg, this court in Clinton against Jones said that if the case was brought in state court, it would raise different issues 
uh, of concerns over local prejudice. Uh, it was different than the separation of powers issues at play. Uh, it was issues involving the Article Two and the Supremacy Clause. So the court said that on pages 691 and footnote 13. With regard to everyone, uh, every man's evidence, uh, this court has long recognized that the president is not to be treated as an ordinary citizen. Uh, he has responsibilities. He is himself a branch of government. He is the only individual that is a branch of government in our federal system. So to uh, I, our position is that the Constitution itself, uh, both in structure and text, supports the position that the president would be temporarily immune from this activity, from a state proceeding, while he is the president of the United States. Justice Breyer? Every man's evidence excludes the president. If I may, um, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, uh, Justice Ginsburg, it's, it's not that it excludes every, the president. The president is not to be treated as an ordinary citizen, and this is a temporary immunity. This is for while the president's in office, and we think that is required by the Constitution. Thank you. Justice Breyer. Well, you make a point of the 2,300 district attorneys, but of course in Clinton v. Jones there might be a million, I don't know, tens of thousands of people who might bring lawsuits. Perhaps uh, all of them were unfounded, but they could file the paper. Um, why isn't it sufficient just to apply ordinary standards? I gather ordinarily any person can get a subpoena can come in and say it's unduly burdensome. And what counts as unduly burdensome for a doctor who's in the middle of an operation might be very different from a person who's a salesman. And similarly for the president, all the factors you raise could come in under the title unduly burdensome. So why not just go back? Let the president say, I'll show you precisely how this is burdensome. I'm going to spend time, effort, working all these things out, figuring out what they mean, etc. And if he shows undue burden and lack of connection, he wins, and otherwise not. That's true of every person. That's Clinton v. Jones. Why not the same here? Justice Breyer, the hypothetical you just gave, I think, proves the point. By the time you were to prepare, review, analyze the various requests, just in these two, three cases that we have today, shows the burdensome nature. And then to require the President of the United States, who, and as you raised in your opinion, in a concurring opinion in Clinton versus Jones, that burden is being met just by us being here. But to require the President to have to respond to each and every state district attorney that would like no, to... No, he would hire case. you, and he'd hire a lawyer to list what the burdens are. That wouldn't take a lot of time. And then he wouldn't be burdened because you'd go in and say what the burdens are. And if you're right, you win that case. They are saying the other side, there are no burdens here. Well, You I say there are. Support. So send I, it back and let them figure out what they are. I think doing that establishes the problem with an analysis of a case-by-case -case analysis. For instance, in this very case, in this subpoena found on page 118A and 19, of the petition appendix. There's a list of documents that are extensive. You would have to meet with the President of the United States. I mean, could you imagine just for a moment, Justice Breyer, that I, and you said he, let's assume the President were to hire me, that I'm going to call the President of the United States today and say, I know you're handling a p pandemic right now for the United States, but I need to spend a couple of two to three hours with you going over a subpoena 
of documents that are wanted by here, the New York County District Attorney. I know you're busy, but you can, can you uh, carve me out two hours? Justice, Justice Alito? Are there at least some circumstances in which the U.S. Constitution would permit a local prosecutor to subpoena records containing information about a sitting president? So think of this situation. Suppose that the prosecutor has good reason to believe that the records contain information that is not available from any other source about whether a third party committed a crime, and suppose that waiting until the end of the president's term would make the prosecution of that crime impossible or at least very difficult. Would you say that at least in that circumstance it would be permissible for the grand jury subpoena to be enforced? In a, in a state court proceeding, the, the issues of time and burden are still there. Now, in U.S. v. Nixon, uh, that was a case where the president was a witness, uh, and the documents were asked for, and that this court said it should be handed over. But in that case, it was very clear that the president was a witness, and the uh, uh, attorney, the independent counsel there, uh, Leon Jaworski, specifically stated to this court that the president was not a target. So if we had a pure witness standpoint, while it's a different case, the same constitutional principles would be at play, but here we're talking about criminal process targeting a president. Well, was the answer that that would be permissible if the uh, prosecutor were willing to say that the president was not a target, whatever that means? Well, it wouldn't mean that it's constitutionally permissible. It would raise different issues for the president to consider. But constitutionally, I think that we have to be, I have to be very clear here, that constitutionally, under Article Two and the Supremacy Clause, as to a state court proceeding here, we think even as a witness, it raises serious issues. Obviously, a very different case than this, but serious issues nonetheless. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Justice Sotomayor. Counsel, it seems that you're asking for a broadness uh, of immunity that Justice Thomas pointed out is nowhere in the Constitution. And in fact, the Constitution protects against presidential interference with state criminal proceedings. It doesn't allow the president to pardon uh, offenders for state prosecutions or state criminal convictions. And yet, I, I find it odd that a, you want us to rule that there's essentially an absolute immunity from investigative powers, the height of a state's police powers, um, and that we would permit a civil damages uh, case by a private litigant, which we did in Clinton. Prosecutors have ethical obligations um, with respect to grand jury investigations. They have to keep those investigations secret. They can be prosecuted if they leak that information. Um, don't we usually presume that state courts and state prosecutors act as they should and in good faith? Even if you were and to assume that... If you let me finish. And doesn't yeah, the president always have the opportunity to show that a particular subpoena, in fact, was issued in bad faith? The president was given that opportunity here, and um, an affidavit, I understand, was filed under seal setting forth the reasonable grounds for the investigation. 
I'm not sure why he's entitled to more immunity for private acts than he should be for public acts. Well, he's the president of the United States. He is a branch of the federal government. We only give give judicial officers and congressional officers immunity for acts within their official capacity. If they don't, if judges sexually harass someone, we've said that's not within judicial functions, they can be sued. Um, If congressmen do the same thing, they can be sued. So my question still comes, you're asking for a broader immunity than anyone else gets. Well, we're asking for a temporary... Do you have time for a brief answer, counsel? I I will. We're asking for temporary presidential immunity. I would point out that under New York state law, witnesses before a grand jury are not sworn to secrecy. They can state that they testified and what the nature of their testimony was. I'd also like to point out that there are hundreds of members of the United States Congress and 100 members of the United uh, States Senate. There is one president. Thank you. Justice Kagan? So, Mr. Secretary, you've said that a number of times and made the point, which we have made, that presidents can't be treated just like an ordinary citizen. But it's also true, and indeed a fundamental precept of our constitutional order, that a president isn't above the law. Uh, You know, from our first days, Chief Justice Marshall told Thomas Jefferson that he could be subpoenaed, he could be examined as a witness, he could be required to produce papers. And so I guess going back to... Justice Breyer's question, why isn't the way to deal with these two things, that the president is special, but that the president is like an ordinary citizen in that he's subject to law, is to say the president can make these usual objections that a subpoena recipient can make about harassment or about burden, and the court, in reviewing those, of course, should take seriously the president's objections and treat those with a certain kind of sensitivity and respect uh, due to somebody who is a branch of government. Why isn't that the right way to do it? For two reasons. First, and I think the case here is the perfect example, here the district attorney copied verbatim the House Oversight Committee and Ways and Means Committee subpoena verbatim. So and we were just discussing in the previous case the nature of that burden. For counsel, the president hiring counsel, for each time he could be subpoenaed as a witness, or in this particular case as a target, would raise a serious impact on the president's Article II functions. So we think a categorical approach, and it's very specific here, state process as to the president uh, targeting the president's documents in a criminal proceeding should be prohibited. Justice Gorsuch? Counsel, I'd I'd like to return uh, to the question of Clinton versus Jones and how you would have us distinguish it. Uh, Yes, it took place in federal court, but it was a civil case. And uh, as has been pointed out, uh, others, there could have been multiple versions of that in multiple different districts across the country. Um, So what's what's different about that? How do we avoid the conclusion there that uh, the president wasn't uh, subject to some special immunity, but here is. I think uh, I think the nature of the case that we're dealing with here is not in a vacuum itself. There are other cases that the president is dealing with at the same time. So what may have been a situation for President Clinton with a lawsuit, we have multiple litigation going on, including with the New York Attorney General. So I think the 
supremacy clause issue and the article two issue here is pronounced as this court alluded to in clinton against jones for that very reason this idea that local prejudice would impact the president so the idea that we would wait until there's more of these we're already here on four subpoenas or three subpoenas three cases involving multiple subpoenas much of which covers the same documentation so i think it, it in fact justice gorgeous proves the point we're here because the house has asked for documents that now the district attorney is asking for so we are seeing that in real time the burdensome well, nature of what's happening here uh, uh, how is it, how is this more burdensome though than what took place in clinton versus jones i, I guess i'm i'm not sure i understand well i mean it, there's a, a big distinction between a, a, a defendant in a civil case and a, a principal in a criminal case uh, here by the state uh, district of the let, local let me DA. stop you there. Yes, yes. They're, they're, they're the, they sought the deposition of the president while he was serving. Here, they're seeking records from third parties. But they're his records from third parties, Justice Gorsuch. The third party is simply the agent custodian of the president's tax returns on the president's statement of financial conditions. So these are the president's documents that they're asking. And what's to stop them? from seeking a deposition of the president, or for that matter, asking the president to appear before a grand jury. Because if the official versus unofficial was the deciding factor, and our view is that the initiation of process here interferes with the president's official duty, but if there was gonna be this unofficial official distinction put in place, well then what stops the, the local district attorney from having the president testify, having the pres president tried? This is Justice Kavanaugh. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and good afternoon, Mr. Sekulow. Good afternoon. Just following up on Justice Gorsuch, just explain, if you can, the rationale for having one rule for criminal and another rule for civil. Just assume there's one criminal investigation, that's it. Uh, and just explain the rationale for a different rule there. Well, it's not that it's a different rule because in this case, because it's within the context of a state proceeding, you have Article II concerns uh, and it's the supremacy clause issues, as this court alluded to in uh, Clinton against Jones, that create the issues of concern about local prejudice. But the, the criminal nature of it creates a burden very distinct from a civil case, to be clear. Uh, someone why, that why is target. Well, the idea that you are the subject or a target of a criminal case being brought against you is very different than a civil suit where at the end of the day, it results in monetary damages, not a loss of liberty. So there's a big distinction between a civil case and a criminal case in that regard. And I think that impacts the, the standard upon which this court should be looking at the president's temporary presidential immunity. We're talking about stopping a process targeting the president, this subpoena targeting the president. That's what we're talking about here. It is that burden that is our concern. I think the other side says that uh, the position you're articulating is a bit more consistent with Justice Breyer's concurrence in Clinton versus Jones than with the majority opinion in his concurrence. He said that judges are hearing a private civil damages action against a sitting president may not issue orders that could significantly distract a president from his official duties. Um, it's pointed out that that language was not in the majority opinion. Uh, what do you think uh, about how we should assess that? Uh, that well, I think it, it, civil Jones. discovery 
versus criminal processes are two very distinct processes. And in a, in a civil context, in a civil proceeding, uh, there's a, we have the federal rules of civil procedure in the federal court that govern how that process goes forward, and federal judges can take into con various considerations, especially dealing with the president. This is a state proceeding uh, initiated by the local district attorney against the sitting president of the United States. So the, our concern here is this, the nature of the proceeding itself is why we view categorically that a subpoena targeting the president and his uh, records here how do you uh, deal? Sorry to interrupt. How do you no, deal please. with statute of limitations issues? Well, the statute of limitation issues, are, of course, are decided under New York state law. And under New York state law, there would be procedures that could be utilized if, in fact, the, the DEA were to elect to, to, to start a process like that or if there were to eventually be action. But I, I, I need to say Thank something. You. Thank yeah, you. Thank counsel. you, counsel. Thank you, Mr. Chief. General Francisco. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, at a minimum, a local prosecutor should have to show he really needs the president's personal records to subpoena them for two reasons. First, as the court suggested in Clinton against Jones, state proceedings can pose a greater threat to the presidency. The 2,300 prosecutors across the country necessarily place more emphasis on local interests than national ones. A special needs standard ensures that federal courts balance the prosecutor's local need for information against national interests, including the president's need to do his job. Second, ordinary grand jury rules are not designed to protect Article II interests. That's why in Nixon, the court held a federal prosecutor had to show a demonstrated specific need for the information sought. A local prosecutor should at least be required to meet the same standard. As the court has repeatedly said, in no case of this kind would a court be required to proceed against the president as against an ordinary citizen. And here the district attorney hasn't tried to meet the special needs standard. General Francisco, uh, we, we just heard uh, Mr. Seculo argue in favor of an absolute standard. Uh, uh, no circumstances, no how. Um, your position uh, is that, as you say, at a minimum, uh, the special needs test uh, must be met. Of course, Mr. Seculo is representing uh, Mr. Trump. You're representing the United States. You're arguing for a more flexible standard. So uh, what was wrong with Mr. Trump's position? Uh, Your Honor, I actually think that um, Mr. Seculo makes a very strong argument on the immunity issue. We just don't think it's one that the court needs to address, at least until the prosecutor uh, uh, argues and attempts to meet the special needs standard. Here, since the prosecutor hasn't argued and isn't arguing before this court that he meets the special needs standard, there's no reason for the court to address the broader immunity question, and, and, and it's the court's ordinary uh, processes to try to avoid those broader and more difficult questions when possible. And here we think that the special needs standard uh, would fully resolve this case at this stage of the proceedings. Well, in a, in a typical case, uh, with adequate allegations to say that the standard's implicated, uh, you would say that it goes before a court and the court will examine whether or not the criteria uh, uh, you, you talk about, uh, which I gather is the test under uh, Nixon, uh, are met. And under uh, Mr. Seculo's standard, uh, the, would not immediately go before the court. He was looking for a ruling from us saying that he's absolutely immune, so the court would have no business addressing such a case. That's a very significant difference. 
Well, Your Honor, I think that in both instances, the argument would be available to an article, you'd be able to make that argument to an Article II federal court under our argument if the court found that the prosecutor hadn't met the Nixon special needs standard, it wouldn't need to address the broader immunity question. If it did find that the special, that the uh, district attorney met the special needs standard, it would have to then address the broader immunity question. And all we are saying is that uh, unless and until the special need issue is addressed at the threshold, there's no need to address the broader immunity question in this case. Thank you, counsel. Justice Thomas? Uh, yes, uh, General Francisco, uh, the, um, you mentioned the uh, level of threat to the president or burden on the president. Uh, how do we determine that uh, when it's too much? Well, Your Honor, here I think there are a couple of things that you can take into account. First, uh, the fact that we're in state court I think is quite significant. Uh, local prosecutors are necessarily going to put more emphasis on local interests than national ones. It simply reflects the manner in which they uh, rise to office through elections by local, uh, relatively homogenous political communities. And in New York State, I would also add that the trial court judges are elected in a similar way. So there you've already got this risk of local prejudice. And so what the special needs standard does it is, is that it ensures that there's a federal court that's available to balance the local interests against the national ones, including the president's need to do his job. And then secondly, it also has to do with the ordinary grand jury rules that would apply to a local prosecutor exercising his authority. Those rules were not designed to, and they're not sufficient to protect Article II interests. Since under ordinary grand jury rules, a district attorney never has to make a particularized showing of need. Instead, the burden is on the witness to show that the subpoena can have no conceivable relevance to any plausible subject of an investigation. Now, that is a perfectly appropriate standard in the ordinary case, but the reason why Nixon applied the special needs standard above and beyond the ordinary rules of criminal procedure was because the court recognized that the president is the sole person in whom all Article II powers are vested. And so he is entitled to a measure of protection above and beyond the ordinary rules. And the special needs standard is one of those measures of protection. To put point back to Justice Breyer's a very persuasive concurrence in Clinton against Jones, I think Justice Breyer correctly predicted that this court would need to develop special protective procedures precisely for the president in the context of litigation like this. Justice Ginsburg? You stress that the states are subordinate sovereigns and they are subject to the supremacy clause, but you don't give any credit at all to the Tenth Amendment and the reserve powers of the state. That's one question that I have. And the uh, as far as the impact of the president is concerned, I think there's no case more dramatic than the Nixon tapes. Devastating impact on the president. He resigned from office, but yet that was okay. So I really don't get it. Uh, so, Your Honor... Yes. So, Your Honor, in, in terms of the Tenth Amendment, all we're saying is that Article II vests 
all executive power in a single president of the United States. Uh, he is the sole person in whom all executive power is vested, and so that necessarily implies that there are limits on what others can do to unduly burden him in his ability to do his job. So all that the special needs standard does is ensure that a prosecutor really needs the president's information before he can enforce that subpoena. Since if he can't even show that he really needs the information, he's necessarily imposing an undue burden on the president and creating a serious risk of harassment. And if you multiply that by 2,300 prosecutors across the country, I think that the risk to the presidency is quite obvious. In terms of the Nixon case, we are actually arguing for the same standard that the court applied in the Nixon case, the special needs standard. We're just saying that a local prosecutor and state court should be, at a minimum be required to meet the same standard that the federal prosecutor and Nixon had to meet and show that he really does need the information that he's seeking. Since again, if he doesn't, it's and unnecessarily I, uh, yes, the, the grand jury is an investigatory body. It doesn't make at the outset specific charging decisions while the investigation is underway. It investigates in order to determine should there be specific charging decisions. But you would have them make the charging decision before they investigate, and that seems to be backward. Uh, Your Honor, respectfully, no. I would simply urge that you apply the same standard that Judge Wald applied in the Inree Field case, which was a grand jury subpoena issued to the White House where uh, she concluded properly, in our view, that Nixon's special needs standard ought to apply to grand jury subpoenas. It's not, uh, you don't have to make a charging decision, but you do have to show a, a demonstrated, specific, particularized need for the information uh, pursuant to which you are issuing the, for, uh, the grand jury subpoena. Justice Breyer? If, uh, th thank you. Uh, General, I, I think that uh, Nixon tape case has one thing for you, one thing against you. The, the thing against you, I think it was a case where executive privilege was asserted. But what's for you, and I think might be more relevant, is, is in that case, the court said, well, there has been first a weighing of the burdensome nature, etc., a lot of other things in that, in the lower courts that have decided that it is appropriate to go forward. Now, what I don't see is why you need a special standard more than that here, the ordinary standard. You would Your Honor. need... You would need uh, a decision by us that it's reviewable in federal court. I understand that. But I don't see why you have to go beyond that where the things you're talking about would be taken into account. Uh, Your Honor, you are absolutely correct that at a minimum we would need federal court review. And in that regard, I would note that the district attorney here uh, agrees that there are Article II limits on what he can do and that those Article II limits are in federal court. But respectfully, I would suggest that Nixon stands for more than simply some kind of weighing of interest. Nixon applied the special needs standard, uh, and it said that the prosecutor did, in fact, have to show a particularized need for the information. That's all that we're suggesting ought to apply. Yeah, but wasn't that in the context of assertion of executive privilege? Excuse me, Your Honor? Wasn't that in the context of an assertion by the president of executive privilege? 
Yes, Your Honor, it was, but uh, litigation about private conduct is also burdensome, and as the court recognized in Clinton against Jones, the president might well need more protection in state court than he gets in federal court precisely because of the risk of local prejudice, and that's why the court reserved judgment on that question. So I think when you put those two things together, it does uh, make it entirely appropriate to hold a local prosecutor in state court to the same standard as the uh, federal prosecutor was held to in the Nixon case. And indeed, even if you were to take the district attorney's own case-specific test, I think you would need the special needs standard. After all, we don't typically get discovery into a grand jury proceeding. So the only way to assess at the front end whether the prosecutor is issuing an unduly burdensome subpoena or issuing a subpoena in bad faith is to require some kind of showing of special needs. After all, why would a local... Justice Alito? General, could you explain in more specific terms how you think this showing of special need would be carried out in district court? I assume that the prosecutor would have to make some kind of... uh, would have to reveal what was being investigated and why this particular information was needed for or essential for the investigation. Now, would that be done, uh, would that be reviewed by the judge ex parte? Would it be available to whoever the sitting president is to object to that, to review it and object to it? Uh, Your Honor, it's difficult to answer that question in a vacuum because I think it would very much depend on the particular case, but let me make my best stab at it. I think that in order to have meaningful judicial review, uh, you would need, the, the prosecutor would need to make public as much as could responsibly be made public so that the president would have an opportunity and the president's lawyers would have an opportunity to make their uh, case on the particular facts. If there is a certain amount of evidence that really cannot responsibly be made public, then I think it would be appropriate to consider ex parte proceedings or filings under seal. Uh, In all events, we think that that's the type of assessment that needs to be made when you're talking about subpoenas, unprecedented subpoenas like this one, that are uh, from state and local prosecutors targeting the President of the United States. The other place I would point you to is, again, Judge Wald's Wald's very good opinion for the D.C. Circuit in the Inree Field case, where she does walk through in some amount of detail uh, and unpack how the special needs standard applies to grand jury subpoenas. How uh, essential must the information be in order to meet this special needs standard? Does it have to be absolutely indispensable, not available from any other source by any conceivable means, or simply very useful? Uh, Your Honor, it's probably somewhere in between those two things. I think it's got to be, uh, I think it's got to be critical to the charging decision, so it can't just be marginally useful or, you know, merely duplicative or, or, or interesting to a tangential side issue. It does have to be critical to the charging decision. If the information is readily available elsewhere, I don't see how a prosecutor could meet the special needs standard. Uh, and if the information he has, he currently does have is sufficient for him to make a responsible charging decision, I also don't think he, how he could meet the special needs standard. So I guess I would Thank put you, it counsel. somewhere. Uh, Justice Sotomayor? General, um, there's always danger 
in taking a doctrine adopted for one set of needs, and that has to do with needs that are balancing what is clearly recognized in law as executive privilege versus the needs for the proceeding at issue, um, and transplanting it to a situation that's totally different, where we're not talking about a claim of executive privilege, and we're not talking of uh, executive immunity. Um, we're talking about private activities that predated the president's uh, tenure. So why are we using all that transplanted language, and why don't we get to a standard that takes care of what you're worried about, which is harassment and interference, and simply ask whether the, the investigation is based on credible suspicion of criminal activity, and whether the subpoena is reasonably calculated to advance that investigation. Um, a standard that looks to whether there is a good faith basis for the state prosecutor's actions, and whether the subpoena is reasonable in its scope and burdens. I don't understand why that sort of standard is inadequate, especially for a proceeding that involves secrecy, like a grand jury su subpoena. For two reasons, Your Honor. First, uh, for the reasons that uh, I think Justice Breyer did persuasively explain in Clinton against Jones, even litigation about private conduct can be quite burdensome, and that is particularly so when you're talking about private conduct that's being litigated in state court pursuant to state procedures. So I think that's why he correct correctly predicted that this court would need in future cases to develop special protective procedures precisely in this context. And secondly, I think that the special protective procedure that we are proposing here is necessary even under Your Honor's general approach. After all, uh, why would a prosecutor take the unprecedented step of issuing a subpoena to the President of the United States for personal records from a, a, a local prosecutor if he can't even show that he really needs the information that he's seeking? If he can't make that showing, I think there is a pretty good reason to be a little bit suspicious. Uh, after all, very Justice Kagan. So, General, a couple of times now, in uh, response to Justice Breyer and Justice Sotomayor, you've explained why we should use the standard from executive privilege cases by saying, well, litigation about private conduct is also burdensome. But the point about executive privilege cases is not that it's burdensome. I mean, the, the critical factor is the weighty interest that a president has in communicating with advisors on official matters, often about national security, often about military matters, uh, and, and, and the need for confidentiality in that. And that's why the Nixon standard was developed, not because of generalized ideas about burdensomeness, uh, which can be dealt with in other ways. So again, why should that standard be used here? Uh, respectfully, Yarn, because I think that they're parallel interests. Uh, executive, executive privilege, you are right, is meant to protect the confidentiality of communications, but Article II more generally is meant to protect the president from being unduly burdened in his ability to carry out his responsibility. And so, and I think that's particularly necessary when you're talking about state court proceedings 
by the many, many 2,300 local prosecutors across the country who, again, are uh, more responsive to local political constituencies and local interests than national ones. So I think again, that when you General, look at articles... Uh, this, this heightened standard in order to take account of burdensomeness. Burdensomeness is something that can be addressed in any subpoena, and I'm sure that courts, when it gets to the president and the special responsibilities of the president, will address those uh, uh, interests with uh, respect, with sensitivity, especially if we tell them so. Uh, so why would you need this heightened standard that is meant to protect confidential communications about official government business? For two reasons, Your Honor. First, because under the ordinary grand jury rules, the only question as to burdensomeness is whether the subpoena has any conceivable relevance to any plausible subject of investigation and therefore is unduly burdensome. And secondly, I think that judgment has to be made by federal courts, not state courts, because state courts, like local prosecutors, are going to be more responsive to local interests. After all, in New York State, trial court judges like the district attorneys are elected in partisan elections. So all we're saying is that this is the type of assessment that needs to be made in federal court, and the most appropriate and easy-to-apply standard is the standard that you've already been applying for 50 years under the Nixon case. And we Thank think you, that Counsel. that is... Uh, Justice Gorsuch? Counsel, I'd like to just explore a little further uh, how this standard would, that you're proposing would play out in practice. I, I suppose you'd have a, a local prosecutor saying, I'm investigating a tax infraction. And the best and maybe only evidence uh, of, of that potential infraction are the tax records in the possession of the, uh, uh, of the potential defendant. Um, why wouldn't that meet the special heightened test that you proposed in every case? And if, that, if, that, if it does, that then what, what have we achieved? Well, Your Honor, uh, I think it would depend on who the potential defendant is. Uh, if the potential defendant is the President of the United States, here the District Attorney doesn't contest the fact that he cannot indict the President of the United States until after he leaves office. So he wouldn't be able to show that he needs the information now in order to uh, indict the President of the United States. Of course, if the potential defendant is somebody else, then it might start looking closer to the Nixon case itself where the special counsel was investigating a third party. And I think that would, in fact, be a relevant consideration under the special needs standard. I, I guess I didn't follow that last portion of it. Let, let's say the infraction is by a corporation or uh, some entity. Um, mm -hmm. And we need the, the prosecutor is going to say we need these materials in order to determine whether there is an infraction. Uh, right. Why wouldn't that qualify under your standard? I think that would certainly be a relevant thing to take into account under our standard. And if he actually met the special need test with respect to the information uh, and found that it was really necessary in order to uh, bring charges against that third party, he may well meet the special needs standard, and then you'd have to address the broader immunity questions. In how this particular... How much showing of a special need is required under, under your under your standard, the prosecutor says I have some some reasonable suspicion that there's a tax deficiency by some entity. Is that enough? Uh, your Honor, I think it's, I think it's more than that. I think he's got to show that the information he's seeking is critical to him responsibly making a charging decision. That he can't get that information from somewhere else, 
and the information that he does have is insufficient. It's essentially the same standard the court applied, this court applied in Nixon, the D.C. Circuit applied in the in Refield case. You know, it's not like it's a, a hard and fast bright line rule, but it is an administrable rule that courts have been applying for some 50 years now. Thank you, counsel. Justice Kavanaugh. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and good afternoon, General Francisco. Good I, afternoon. Want to follow, I want to follow up on Justice Thomas and Justice Kagan and really zero in on what the Article II interest is before we talk about uh, what standard. And I think uh, in Justice Breyer's concurrence in Clinton against Jones, uh, he referred to the interest in time and energy distraction which he drew from Nixon versus Fitzgerald, a different Nixon case, as an independent Article II interest that is distinct from distortion of official decision-making, which would be more the uh, executive privilege uh, kind of interest. Is that the Article II interest you're zeroing in on, or is it something else? Well, Your Honor, respectfully, I think it's both of them. And as I read Justice Breyer's opinion, he likewise understood it to be both of them. The whole idea is that uh, Article II vests all executive power in a single person. And that necessarily means that others can't unnecessarily hobble or debilitate that person in his ability to responsibly carry out his duties. So the whole point of the special needs standard is to ensure that others, including prosecutors, can't unnecessarily impede the president in carrying out his responsibilities. So at a minimum, they have to show that they really need the information that they're seeking. Since if you have 2,300 prosecutors that are unnecessarily hitting the president with subpoenas and none of them can actually show they really need that information, you're necessarily going to be undermining the president's ability to effectively carry out the Article II duties that the Constitution entrusts to him and to him alone on behalf of the entire country. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Dunn? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, there are two principles at issue in this case. One is the central role of the president in the functioning of our national government and the need to avoid interfering with the president's ability to carry out those important duties. The other principle is that under our constitution, when a president acts as a private individual, he or she has responsibilities like every other citizen, including compliance with legal process. In particular, this court has long held that American presidents are not above having to provide evidence in response to a law enforcement inquiry. We're mindful that as a state actor, our office cannot investigate a president for any official acts and that we cannot prosecute a president while in office. But here, we're talking about a subpoena sent to a third party concerning private conduct by a variety of individuals and businesses. Yes, one of them is the president, but no one's been targeted or charged with anything. There's no claim of any official acts or any executive privilege. As the courts below found, the subpoena imposes no Article II burden whatsoever and was not born of any political animus or intent to harass. Instead, it was prompted by public reports that certain business transactions in our jurisdiction were possibly illegal. Given those allegations, our office would have been remiss not to follow up. In response, <clears throat> the president asked the court to overturn 200 years of precedent by declaring he has a blanket immunity while in office from any legal inquiry, even for his prior private acts even though that could result in a permanent immunity for him and the other parties if the statutes of limitation expire, and even though it could prevent the discovery of evidence that could exonerate the individuals involved. Finally, 
His novel claim also asked the court to presume that state actors have a, quote, reckless mania that will cause them to, quote, relentlessly harass presidents, and that state and federal courts will allow prosecutors to do so. Of course, there's no historical support for this claim, which flies in the face of federalism. The supposed floodgates have been open for generations, and there's never been a flood. The only thing new here is the subpoena comes from a state. But absent a constitutional burden, that shouldn't lead the court to abandon its long-standing respect for state criminal proceedings. Thank you, counsel. Um, you know, we've had the cases this morning uh, and this case, and they are in many respects very uh, similar. In, on, in the case of the uh, subpoena itself, they're uh, identical. But I think in other respects, they're really quite different. Uh, the uh, separation of powers case this morning involved <laughs> entities in an ongoing relationship, the House and the President, and issues of this sort, although always very important, come up with some regularity. There's often disputes between the White House and Congress over documents, and almost always they're, they're worked out because each of those branches have authorities and powers that uh, uh, affect each other. Uh, uh, you know, if the Senate asks for documents from uh, the White House and the White House doesn't give them, then the Senate says, well, we're going to, you know, uh, take our time confirming your nominees and, and back and forth. But with respect to local prosecutors, you don't have that uh, ongoing relationship. So the possibility of working something out is, is far less evident. And if you're doing that, the, the stakes are, well, it's just a little more difficult because there isn't that ongoing relationship. So shouldn't there be a higher standard before we permit uh, the district attorneys from around the country? But there are also more of them than the two houses of Congress, 2,300 of them. Uh, shouldn't there be a higher standard uh, than in the case of um, the separation of powers uh, dispute? Um, I th Your Honor, I think our answer to that is yes. And um, putting aside uh, its relationship or not to the separation of powers analysis, I'd like to address the, uh, the DOJ's proposed heightened showing standard um, uh, because we, we see that, uh, let me put it this way, we see there, there are three reasons, I think, why the DOJ's new heightened showing proposal doesn't work. And a number of questions in the last argument, I think, touched on some of these concepts, if I might. First, um, one problem is that the, the approach that they're suggesting really reverses the court's prior uh, approach to fact-finding in these types of cases in a way that I think would harm the grand jury process, which I can explain. So again, we agree there, there should be a heightened showing requirement, but my point is only after a president has already established an actual Article II burden. Otherwise, there's nothing for a court to weigh in the balancing of Article II interests against the need for a legal process, which, and that balancing and that sequencing, frankly, was both uh, central in both Nixon and Clinton cases. Here- Would you articulate for me precisely what standard you think should apply in your case, and in what sense is it more rigorous than that would apply in the uh, uh, dispute between the White House and Congress? Yes, I, I think um, we believe that a prosecutor, if there's been an, an affirmative showing by, by a president uh, of an Article II burden, um, and of course the courts have below held that there has not been such a showing here, but if in a different case there was such a showing made, we believe a prosecutor should be required to show one, an objective basis for the investigation, and two, a reasonable probability the request would yield relevant information. We think language like that would be more consistent with past cases of this court and with the realities of a grand jury investigation. And frankly, uh, the, the courts below also already found that we've met that standard here. The, the, the problem is that the alternative 
of requiring a state prosecutor to get permission first from a federal judge for any request relating to a, a president's business activities would undermine this court's prior rulings, like the one in our enterprises, that a grand jury shouldn't be burdened by pr procedural challenges and delays because it's a confidential process and not an adversarial proceeding. And the DOJ's new standard just ignores that. The other problem- Justice, uh, Justice Thomas? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, Mr. Dunn, uh, you were about to say how DOJ's uh, approach would harm the grand jury process. Would you finish that? Yes, and, and I think I was just addressing that, uh, Justice Thomas. That is, you know, if, to, to require us in any given case um, to run to across the street to federal court and say, by the way, uh, we have an investigation underway. It happens to touch on a president's uh, prior uh, business transactions in which he and others were involved in, and we'd like to get permission to send a subpoena uh, for records that are in either the, the possession of a president or maybe the president's uh, agents like his accounting firm here. Again, it completely upends the way that a grand jury process is supposed to work. If I might, the second big problem, I think, with the DOJ's analysis is that um, the language that they've chosen just doesn't work, contrary to wise to what I just uh, set out, because it only applies in the context of a trial subpoena. It calls for a, quote, stringent showing that the request is, quote, directly relevant to central issues at trial and charging decisions. Again, that language just doesn't apply in the context of a grand jury when no charging decisions have been made. So that's why the, the formulation that we've suggested, I think, would be uh, more uh, consistent with what's needed in a grand jury context. But again, we think that it's utterly unnecessary here to apply in our case because, A, there's already been a finding of no Article II burden, and B, we have already met the standard by, by the district court's finding that our, um, our investigation is well-founded and brought in good faith. So, so what, is, what limits uh, a grand jury uh, process in, in New York? What um, are the limits? Well, the limits are, I think, the same basically as they are in a federal court and most other states, Your Honor. I mean, yes, a, 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 the recipient of a subpoena who has a basis to argue either a privilege or a burden of some sort um, has the right, as the president did here, to go into court and make those Factual arguments that it's um, that that's, that either it should be uh, quashed or or uh, constrained in some fashion. Um, uh, it is there is there is a grand jury judge who supervises all grand juries and their activities, who is always available here. But I think the more important point, perhaps, Your Honor, is that obviously, given the decision of the Court of Appeals below in this case, uh, and to address that concern and that footnote in in in, um, uh, in Clinton. Um, at this point, it's clear that a president in particular who has a concern about this kind of uh, impact on Article II duties now always has the ability to go into federal court and not into state court, which was the main concern in that footnote in Clinton. What if you thought it was the president said it was impossible for him to do his job as opposed to just being burdened? Uh, would, that, uh, would we have uh, a role to limit uh, or somehow... Uh, um, and the uh, grand jury process? Uh, absolutely, Your Honor. I mean, I think that's, that's the point of the case-specific analysis, is, is that it gives a, a, a court, and here a federal court, to hear a concern like that expressed. And if the concern is, you know, it, somehow this shuts my office down, or it is a, it's a real burden, it's not just a, a speculative mental distraction claim, um, then yes, the courts are empowered to uh, impose a wide variety of limitations 
including, if necessary, to shut an investigation down or to shut a, a subpoena or a litigation down. That's the beauty of this court's prior decisions in Nixon and Clinton and others, which have decided consistently to apply the case-specific analysis and, and, and have rejected the notion that this is best treated with a, a categorical prophylactic rule. I just think that that's not uh, appropriate here when it's also case-specific. Thank you. Justice Ginsburg? The principal objections that have been raised is that when you're dealing with federal prosecutions, it's all controlled by the Attorney General. But here you have 2,300 district attorneys, each armed with grand jury subpoena power. So the control that exists in, in federal courts with the Attorney General at the helm, and no one uh, controlling all of these state district attorneys. I understand, Your Honor, and I think really what that gets centrally to is the, um, the consistent argument here about the parade of horribles, if you will. And if I could address that, I think there's several answers to that concern. First of all, there's really no empirical basis in, in history for this this apocalyptic prediction. The same claim was made and rejected by this court in Nixon and then in Clinton. That, of course, was decades ago, and there has not been a flood of subpoenas or litigations um, or prosecutions of, of presidents by, by states or federal uh, uh, prosecutors. Second, as a practical matter, you know, this notion that there are 2,300 prosecutors out there writing uh, with their subpoena pads open, there's just no basis to think that an army of local prosecutors like that would even have jurisdiction in, over a president, especially for private conduct in the first place. Here, New York City, of course, has a particular connection to the Trump organization and has financial transactions because it's headquartered here. It's not likely that, that more than one or many states, much less two, 2,300 counties, would ever have that kind of connection to a president's private conduct. Third, um, I, I think as, as, as Justice Ginsburg, you mentioned in, in the last argument, there's a view that the that people that the, there's a reckless mania by local prosecutors contradicts this court's longstanding presumption in favor of regularity and deference to state proceedings. Um, and so to, to finish off, the limitation I think that you're asking about really comes in the, in the form of the case-specific showing that past cases from this court have established. Because if there is a concern about the behavior of a local prosecutor, any president, when necessary, but it's been a few and far between over the decades, can run now not just into state court, which uh, Clinton thought could be problematic, but can run into federal court and raise exactly the kind of claim that the president has raised here. That's the limitation. Thank you. Justice Breyer. Well, thank you. Um, I, what... But I agree with you that the two basic principles you said at the outcome are there, every man's evidence versus the constitutional uh, statement that the president is the executive, Article 2, and they conflict. Justice in the first place, or the first case, the power of Congress, Article 1 and Article 2 conflict. Um, All right. I, I think that I would say they don't conflict, but yes, they're intention. Um, they're intention. Fine. All right. Now, a possible solution is, say, no absolute rule, 
but just send it to the ordinary system for weighing the needs versus the burdens. And the different sides have to say what they are. And then have that reviewable in federal court. And because of the nature of it, and we could list in an opinion the kinds of things that might not be or might be relevant depending on the case. And eventually with the president, we might review it. All right, now all that would take time. The time itself would discourage prosecutors from doing this, which might be good. And time itself would encourage House, Congress, President to work things out in a non-judicial way. All right, I don't put that as being wedded to it. I want to know your reaction. Well, Your Honor, I think what you're describing is exactly what this court held in, in Clinton, and it's exactly, frankly, what has happened now in this case, which is, yes, in this case, the, the, the president decided to pursue his, his claim of immunity in federal court versus state court, which is fine and now available, I think, in the future to all presidents. But I think the, the fact that that is you know, what ha- should happen in the ordinary course and which can happen in the ordinary course is, again, the solution and the limiting principle here, because um, it, it does you know, make it clear that there is a remedy and discourages, I would have thought, um, bad faith impulses by any state or local prosecutor who might harbor such an impulse. Um, and provides an outlet that makes sure that it, it can't get out of control. But again, th- that's the beauty of the case-specific analysis. I don't think these things lend themselves to categorical prophylactic rules, and that's been the approach from this court from day one. Thank you. Justice Alito? As I understand your proposed standard, uh, there would be available review in federal court, and uh, prosecutor would have to show an objective basis for the subpoena and the relevance uh, of the subpoena to the investigation. Is that correct? Uh, basically, on our language like that, I, I, I said point two was a reasonable probability that will yield relevant information, but yes, that's the concept. Okay, reasonable probability. What would be your objection to a somewhat more demanding standard? So, uh, the prosecutor would have to show that uh, the information can't be obtained from another source, or would be very it would be very difficult to obtain it from another source, and the information uh, that it, unless the information is obtained right now, as opposed to at the end of the president's term, there would be some serious prejudice to the investigation. Your Honor, I frankly don't think that any of those concepts are foreign to the standard that I, I articulated. And I think they are relevant, in fact, to the objective basis um, and, and relevance uh, points. Um, you know, here, for example, and, and, and again, the, I think the, the, court, the court below, the district court in particular, you know, heard our explanations, and um, including the fact that, you know, the reason why we went to Mazars is not to do an end run around uh, negotiations with the president's lawyers. It's because Mazars, as the outside accounting firm, is, is, as far as we could tell, the only repository of what might be the most important uh, documents in an investigation like this, which are not just the tax returns, but the surrounding accounting materials and work papers, et cetera, which shed light on the good faith or not of the transaction. So my short answer, I'm, I'm sorry, is that I think those, those concepts are, 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 would be fine and not unduly burdensome uh, in, the, in the context of the standard that I set forth. And I ask you one other thing. Do you think that the adjudication of this in uh, all cases 
of a similar nature would uh, uh, depend in any way on state law and practice regarding grand jury secrecy. In federal court, the rules of grand jury secrecy are, of course, very strict. States have different rules. Suppose a particular state imposes no restriction on the revelation by uh, a member of the grand jury or perhaps even by the prosecutor of the information that is supplied in compliance with a subpoena. Well, Your Honor, I'm not aware of any other uh, states uh, uh, having that kind of lax or non-existent grand jury secrecy rule. I can assure the court that uh, in New York State, uh, our grand jury secrecy laws are at least as strict as under the federal system. Um, but putting that aside, if in fact uh, the, the, the fact pattern presents to a judge the prospect that the information in fact will become public, and the president were, were to persuade a judge that the that publication of the documents at issue would themselves impose some sort of Article II burden or uh, other other interference with his executive duties in that given state, you know, I suppose that would be part of the case-specific analysis that the court could could understand and take into account in deciding whether um, that there, there should be some limitation or, or even a quashing of the subpoena itself. I think that's part of the case-specific analysis. And we both know that prosecutors uh, have different, that, that there are prosecutors who leak all sorts of information, including grand jury information, all sorts of media sources, including in specifically the, the New York Times. If, if there were a showing that that was a risk, would that have a bearing on this? Um, Your Honor, it's, it's hard for me to, I, I, I'm not aware of a, any kind of real pattern or practice of leaking of actual grand jury materials that are covered by grand jury secrecy. Yes, in all, the, all different kinds of offices, there are uh, at times, you know, leaks of status of cases and that kind of thing. But I, I am not aware, and, and, and our grand jury secrecy rules really prevent um, prosecutors, I believe, um, from uh, you know actually turning over confidential grand jury secrecy materials to. You're not, aware, you're, you're not aware of this ever happening. Your office is never requested by media in the New York City area to disclose confidential investigative information. Uh, no, well, they ask all the time, Your Honor, and the answer is consistently no, as, as, at least as far as I can represent. But what I'm trying to draw a distinction between is people commenting to reporters all the time, off the record, that kind of thing, versus turning over actual materials like, you know, voluminous tax returns or other sensitive documents that have been gathered and which are covered by grand jury secrecy. Um, that's, that's what I just don't see happening here, and I think history supports that view. Justice when you sort of refer order? to an Article II burden, does that include the, the burden of harassment, the burden of using subpoenas for political purposes? Yes, Your Honor, I would certainly include that there. And again, there's been an a, a express finding below here that there is a, a, the, the investigation was well-founded, that there was no harassment or bad faith in our bringing of the, uh, of the subpoena. Thank you. Justice Sotomayor? Counsel, did I understand your answer to Justice Alito to be that you are in agreement with the SG that we should impose a heightened need standard, a special need standard? No, Your Honor, I was, I was, I, we, we, I think we're all now calling it the heightened showing standard or in the DOJ's lexicon now the heightened need standard. But I think what I'm articulating is a very different 
um, uh, standard in terms of the actual language to be looked at and, and imposed. Again, I think... But wait, if you can, counsel, because I want to be very precise. If your standard includes what the heightened need standard has, then why not call it what it is, heightened need? There has to be a reason you think we shouldn't call it that, and you, I don't know that I understand what difference you're I'm proposing. So, I'm, I'm sorry, Justice Sotomayor. The, the, the concern I have with the DOJ language um, is, again, calling for a stringent showing that a subpoena request is directly relevant to central issues at trial and other concepts like that. What I'm trying to propose is something, I think, which is not so strict and which is not limited to charging and trial-related concepts, but which would be workable in the context of a grand jury subpoena. And again, whatever the standard is that we're articulating, I, I want to stress that I believe that we, our office, has met that standard here, even under the DOJ's proposal, because of the findings by the district All court. Right, tell me why the heightened standard would interfere with the grand jury process. Well, I think, Your Honor, among other things, the, the DOJ's proposed application of its standard, if you read its brief, would confer the same absolute immunity the president is seeking here. What they say is, since you can't indict while in office, you don't need the documents while he's in office. And frankly, that's an outcome that would apply in every case. No subpoena could pass that test because they basically say, um, you know, you have to wait until uh, he's out of office before gathering information um, be, be, because uh, you don't need it in the meantime. And so their definition of heightened need says you don't need it while he's in office. Well, that's not workable here. Why not? Because, well, obviously, Your Honor, if we were to wait until uh, a president was out of office in a situation like this, um, first, it would risk the loss of evidence, the fading of memories and unavailability of witnesses, which is exactly where the DOJ Moss memo, of course, specifically contemplated that a president uh, could be subject to a grand jury while in office to avoid losing that kind of evidence. Secondly, and equally important here, no one should forget that um, we've got an investigation that, that is you know, looking at the conduct of other people and businesses, and waiting like that would benefit those other participants they could all end up above the law if the limitations period expires. So delay here is the same as absolute immunity and absolute permanent immunity for the president and others if, if a statute of limitations expires. That's, that's, the, that's the problem with the delay. Well, the, the other side says the statute would be told against the president, but you're right, it wouldn't be told against other people who may or may not have been com committed crimes that he may or may not be a part of, correct? C correct, and, and that's important, Your Honor, for the third parties. But I, I just, just to address the, uh, um, my friend on the other side's comment about the tolling, uh, I'm not aware uh, in, in state law of any doctrine of, um, of implied tolling that would apply here um, uh, to, to uh, protect the, the state's interests in, in investigating uh, and pr potentially prosecuting, if necessary, down the road. I don't know where that concept comes from, but it's never been articulated by this court. Um, there's no act of Congress which uh, permits that kind of tolling here. And so for us, the statute of limitations is a big concern. We've, we've frankly, we've already um, lost nine months of uh, time in this investigation due to this lawsuit. Um, and again, you know, this to uh, every minute that goes by is, you know, basically without even a decision on the merits here, granting um, the same kind of temporary absolute immunity that the president is seeking here. 
Justice Kagan? Uh, Mr. Dunn, you've been talking about uh, how to analyze these burdens in a case-specific way, the burdens uh, both in terms of the president's time and uh, in terms of any possibility of harassment of the use of a subpoena for political purposes. And Mr. Seculo said that the burdensome nature of these subpoenas is categorical. That was his term. And I take him to mean that, uh, uh, that any subpoena interferes with the president's responsibilities uh, or undermines the president in uh, uh, his handling of the office. So what's the answer to that? Your Honor, I, I, I would make three points. I think um, the fact is that this, the court addressed this question, I think, in Clinton and concluded that a president can't realistically be shielded from every sort of private distraction, including some forms of legal process, especially in our modern age. So that's why it's up to a court to evaluate and protect a president, uh, depending on the circumstances, on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, secondly, here, the claim of you know, the possible mental distraction is completely speculative, really. It's based on the notion that the president might be you know, worried and distracted about where an investigation might lead someday. It's not based on any actual Article II burden or interference of the sort the, the court was um, asking President Clinton to demonstrate um, in Clinton v. Jones. And third, I'd say, if, if that's really the concern, I think it's wrong to think that even a categorical rule here would provide comfort to a distractible president like that. So, for example, nobody suggests here that we should be barred from continuing to investigate um, his, the president's prior colleagues. So if we now gather documents from them that reflect past communications with him while he was CEO, are we then supposed to be stopped because it could create a fear in him that the investigation of others might lead him to be accused of something someday? Again, my point is that this speculative mental distress standard is not an appropriate basis to draw a constitutional bright line. That's why the case-specific approach is more appropriate. And, and speculative mental distress, how about if they really mean political undermining? Well, I mean, if... Uh, that, that's beyond the can of our office, Your Honor, and, and as, again, the district court found, there was no bad faith uh, in, intended by virtue of our, uh, our subpoena. So I, I don't know. Um, it, we, we've, it's already been determined here there's no intent to politically undermine, so I don't know how a court could try to evaluate that, and I'm not sure that would be appropriate. Unless it, unless Mr. It, Mr. Seculo suggests that uh, you've shown your bad faith by taking the language of the House Oversight Committee's subpoena. Yes, Your Honor, and I think we've, we've tried to address that. I mean, the simple fact is that in 2018, when uh, our investigation started and, and thereafter, um, as we've spelled out, and, and th there were a series of uh, uh, public disclosures uh, in, the, in the press about possibly illegal transactions um, involving uh, tax and other financial improprieties. And at the time of the uh, House subpoenas and then our subpoena, it was clear that both our office and the House committees we're looking at the same public allegations in that regard. Um, in a situation like that, once the House subpoena became public, it's not unusual for an office like ours to model our subpoena language on that which has already been made public from a different source when it's going to the same recipient. Um, it makes it easier on the recipient and the process. Um, there was absolutely no communication between our office and the House about this. There's nothing sinister about it, Your Honor. Thank you. Justice Gorsuch? Counsel, I'd like to return to uh, your colloquy with uh, Justices Alito and Sotomayor, because I guess 
Uh, I, I'm uncertain what the daylight is between the test you're proposing and the test the Solicitor General has suggested. Uh, it seems like both of you agree that these questions should be resolved in federal court. Um, and you've suggested that there is, uh, the prosecutor should have to be demonstrate an objective basis for the investigation and, and that there's at least a reasonable probability that the information sought will be helpful to that investigation that it can't be obtained elsewhere and that it's needed now rather than at the end of, of the president's term because of some serious prejudice that might take place in between. Um, as I understood your discussion with Justice Sotomayor, you, you suggested that the, the difference is the Solicitor General thinks there should be an absolute immunity till the end of the term. I confess I didn't read the brief that way. I, I read it as suggesting the district attorney has to show why there's a need for the president's records now rather than at the end of the term. and I. I understood your discussion with Justice Alito to agree that that would be a relevant consideration. Um, what am I missing? I, I think, Your Honor, putting aside the, the language differences, which I tried to highlight, I think the most important distinction is what I, uh, I, I tried to note at the outset, which is the sequencing of the showings that need to be made. Um, because what the DOJ is proposing, as I understand it, is that in the first instance, it, it has to be the, the prosecutor who goes to court, goes to federal court in this instance now, and makes an affirmative showing um, that, there, that the standard has been met, that there's some objective basis and, uh, and it's, it's, uh, it can't be obtained elsewhere, et cetera, et cetera. And only after such a showing has been made by the prosecutor, according to the DOJ, does the burden then shift to the president to show Article II burden. And I think that's what's completely backwards and inconsistent with Nixon and Clinton. I think it's much more appropriate for the, the president as the moving party as here to be required to uh, make a showing as any other litigant would, would be the case, again, here we're talking about purely private conduct, to, to explain why this, this request um, somehow impacts um, not just on you know, a need to gather documents, which is not the case here, but on an actual Article II burden. And only once that showing has been made um, should I think the burden shift to the prosecution, consistent with past cases by this court, to explain why, nonetheless, it's still necessary to permit the court at that point to conduct the, the balancing of um, apples and apples in terms of uh, coming to the right conclusion in a, in a specific case. To me, so that's Mr. Dunn, so, Mr. Dunn, am I correct in thinking then that you agree that the forum should be federal court? You agree on all the relevant considerations, um, the necessity of the information that it can't be obtained elsewhere, the timing issues, all our relevant considerations. It's just who, who bears the burden. Yes, Your Honor. We're fighting over. Well, I, I, I'm, maybe with the DOJ, there's more, there's less daylight between than us and the president's lawyers. But I think the important point that I would want to leave the court with is that even if one were to adopt um, that standard, that, or even frankly, I think the DOJ standard. The fact is, we've already met that test given the findings of the courts below. Oh, I, I, I know you think you win no matter what. I'm, I'm just. We have to write a rule that's presumptively of, of, of some value going forward and, and isn't just about one president, but it's about the presidency. And I, I'm just trying to understand what daylight actually exists. And I, I, is it fair to say that the only daylight that exists between you and the Solicitor General is who bears the burden of proof? I'm not no, trying to put words in your mouth. I'm, I'm trying to understand. No, Your Honor, I, I think it is the burden and the difference in the language, which I pointed out to uh, Justice Sotomayor. I think that language different, those differences are important because I don't think that the DOJ's language works in a grand jury investigation. Thank you. Justice Kavanaugh? 
Thank you, uh, Chief Justice, and good afternoon, Mr. Dunn. On that last point that you were talking about with Justice Gorsuch, the difference between the Nixon heightened need standard, uh, you said it doesn't work in a grand jury. What do you do with Judge Wald's opinion in In Re's sealed case, which took Nixon and did apply it in a grand jury context? Yes, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice as I think you mentioned in the earlier argument, um, the, the fact remains that the In Re's sealed case um, was indeed applying the Nixon standard as the Nixon court contemplated to a claim of executive privilege. And as has been pointed out earlier today, I think that re that's a, a very different analysis to be undertaken for a very different purpose. And I don't think one can just simply you know, import that language and apply it to let, let me, I'm sorry to interrupt. Let's, let's leave that for a, a moment. Uh, but the point on the grand jury versus trial, just on that point, Judge Wald's opinion did take Nixon and apply it in the grand jury context. And, and indeed, in, in the, even in the grand jury context, when we're talking about a privilege analysis, I think that language is appropriate. Um, okay. Because at that point, you already have, once there's been an affirmative showing that established that, that there is a privilege to be, to be uh, addressed, then of course, like with any attorney-client privilege, for example, it's necessary for the court then to turn to the demand or the request and the documents that are at issue and evaluate them in, you know, in let's, light of let's, the... Let's, um, if we can, move on to the Article II issue then. Do you acknowledge that there's an Article II interest at stake here? Yes. And what do you think it is? I think it's, it's the Article II interest to be free from unreasonable burdens on the duties and obligations of the presidency, and that's you know, the same analysis that was applied you know, in Nixon and in Clinton. Um, do you think time, uh, what Justice Breyer referred to as time and energy distraction, are uh, appropriate Article II interests? Well, yes, as a matter of degree. Uh, again, that was that was the court's analysis in Clinton. Recall there that you know, although they, the, this court allowed the litigation to proceed, of course, appropriately, as I think is the case here, there's a need to make sure that the, the courts that are overseeing this kind of objection are undertaking an analysis of what, um, you know, what the burdens are, um, including on a very practical level. I think the Clinton court um, hypothesized that perhaps, you know, a, a request for actual in-person testimony at trial by a president might be inappropriate. Uh, in, in and I think the other side made two distinctions with Clinton, and I want to make sure you have an opportunity to address them. One is the federal state. The other is the civil criminal. On the civil criminal, I suppose uh, one thing I'd like to hear you address is in a civil case, and the court emphasized this in Clinton versus Jones, there's an individual person at stake who has a claim. There's not the same in a criminal context, obviously, there are different and very important interests there, but not the individual interests. Uh, is that? Um, can you address that? Well, that's, that's one distinction, Your Honor. I say, I suppose, on the other side of the coin, there is the important difference that you know there are, um, you know, potentially thousands or or many more uh, potential private litigants out there who are not bound by the kinds of ethical and jurisdictional and other constraints that prosecutors are bound by and to which this court has long paid deference. Um, I think that the, the, the reason for concern in, a, in the civil context is actually much higher than it should then, be. Well, sorry if I can get my last question. And on the um, federal state, if there is an Article II interest at stake, and you said that there is, it's different, of course, from the executive privilege interest, but there's some Article II interest at stake. 
I think the other side says it would be odd if the standard were easier to meet for a state prosecutor than for a federal prosecutor. And I just want to give you an opportunity to address that. Yeah, frankly, Ron, I don't really understand that distinction. I think under the, the analysis that this court has applied before and the one we're talking about now, the, the same um, analysis would apply in terms of a case-specific evaluation in the context of, of a particular facts of a particular request. So just to stop you there, you're okay with whatever standard applies to a federal prosecutor in a case where there's an Article II interest also applying to the state prosecutor? Well, I, I'm not sure exactly what uh, you have in mind, Your Honor, but I, I well, think Well, I guess the, the Nixon standard. You're, you're not okay with the Nixon standard, I don't think, but I just no, want to explore that. No, because of the, the fact that that was applying uh, to um, uh, claims of executive privilege. But I think to get to your point, I, I, I think what it comes down to is that, you know, in the, in the Nixon and Clinton cases, we're, uh, we're talking about, you know, um, Article Three versus um, uh, we're talking about separation of powers analysis. Here, the analogy is we're balancing federalism and Tenth Amendment concerns about police power of the states against the supremacy clause. So it's a different analysis, perhaps, but it's very analogous. Thank you. Uh, counsel, uh, we have time for a little bit of a second round. Um, and I guess the thing that I would like to focus on first is this question of how you examine the burden on the, uh, uh, on the president or the presidency. Um, I just don't understand how it works in terms of you or, or the president being asked to devote a certain amount of time to reviewing, for example, in this case, uh, the, the, the 10 years of documents or whatever. I mean, what is, it, is there supposed to be a hearing where he says, uh, here's what I'm doing. I've got this pandemic thing. You know, China's causing all sorts of uh, 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 trouble. You know, most presidents throughout their term have a pretty long to-do list. And I'm just wondering how it's ever going to be any different in evaluating what that burden is. It seems to me that it would be the same no matter what. You really wouldn't need a particular hearing on that. Well, I guess, Your Honor, when we're talking about you know, in, in the context of a particular subpoena uh, like this one, um, or a litigation or what have you, like in, in Clinton, um, again, this court has already decided that you can't shield a, a president from any sort of every sort of private distraction. And I just want to emphasize here again that uh, that was in the that was in the civil context. The question is whether or not a criminal investigation might be a little bit more distracting. Well, I'm not sure, Your Honor. I mean, I'm not sure whether the stigma of you know, a simple secret grand jury investigation, even if it becomes publicly known, is more distracting and stigmatizing, perhaps, than um, being accused even civilly of sexual misconduct, which was, of course, allowed to proceed in the civil case involving President Clinton. So I'm not sure that, again, the abstract concern about you know, possible mental distraction or even uh, public stigma uh, under this court's prior analysis is sufficient to, to adopt a new bright line constitutional rule that forbids any kind of process like this, given the, the history it's a of, bit of a, It's a little bit of a, a, that is what the president's personal lawyers advocated. It's not what the solicitor general advocated, not an absolute rule. Uh, yes, I know, Your Honor, and, and therefore the answer in that case is what's happened here, which is a case-specific analysis before a court, which, as they do all the time, is able to balance and listen to um, arguments about burdens. And as here, when the court finds there's no Article II burden whatsoever after an opportunity to be heard, um, that should be the answer. And, and that's what's happened here. Uh, Justice Thomas, anything further? Uh, one brief question, uh, Mr. Dunn. Uh, there's been much discussion.
question about uh, burdens on the president. I'd like from you uh, a couple of specific uh, examples of what you think uh, a burden would be that actually counts uh, in your analysis on the part of the president. Well, I guess, Your Honor, again, hypothetically, because our, our subpoena imposes, we say, no burden whatsoever. I understand but, that. But I, I think I would, I would, again, point to this court's language in the Clinton uh, analysis, uh, where it, it was, you know, it was observed in passing in the opinion, um, I think just as dicta, but it was relevant, uh, that, uh, you know, if, if, a, if a president was asked to actually appear and testify at trial someday, someplace outside of the White House, that might be the kind of thing that you'd say really shouldn't have to happen. I would suggest there uh, along those lines too that if if there if a president were to be were to, were to be asked to produ- uh, uh, show up for multiple days of consecutive deposition testimony or something like that, um, you know, those kinds those are practical burdens. Or if if the demands were that he show up at a particular time or place that is uh, you know where there are conflicts and that kind of thing. Again, since we're talking here about private conduct and no executive privilege, um, what we get to are really practical concerns about impositions on on presidential activities, and that's, I think, what we're talking about. Thank you. Justice Ginsburg, anything further? Nothing further. Justice Breyer? No, thank you. Go ahead. Justice Alito? One quick question. I don't know how good this court is about predicting the... Uh, consequences of some of our decisions, but would you say that the, the court's prediction in, in Clinton versus Jones that the decision wouldn't have much of an impact on the presidency has been borne out by history? Um, I guess, Your Honor, I, 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 my view of the chronology in Clinton v. Jones, I'll try to be brief, um, is that I, I think, contrary to some people's view of history, I think that the, the, the district court, following this court's decision, uh, kept a rather close rein on discovery in that case, and don't forget, later granted summary judgment in favor of the president long before trial. It was only that it came out later, of course, in, that it turns out that in his brief deposition in that case that the president committed perjury, which is what led to the impeachment proceedings and other travails he had. So I don't think it was this court's opinion or the litigation itself that led to those problems. It, frankly, it was his decision to lie under oath. So I, 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 don't, I think that this, this court's conclusion in both Nixon and Clinton, that they could not, you could not uh, you know, accept the notion there's going to be a parade of horribles, either in a particular case or across the board, um, still has borne out over history. Justice Sotomayor? I'm not sure that I understood your statement earlier, that the only difference between you and the SG uh, well, there are two differences. One in, in the articulation of special needs um, or heightened standard, but you said it's the burden of proof. But you've already conceded to um, uh, to one of my colleagues that there is an automatic burden on an art- on the Article Two clause by subpoenaing a sitting president. Period. No, I've not. I've so, not, Your Honor. I'm sorry, but I've not. I've not conceded that. All right. What then are you conceding when you say there's a burden? I'm, I'm conceding. I'm conceding. I what think kind the, of burden are you talking about? And number three, um, articulate more precisely what problems you have with the heightened standard that Nixon set in its grand jury subpoena. 
Yeah, I guess in my response, I think to Justice Gorsuch, my concern, my, what I acknowledge was that, yes, a subpoena like this implicates Article II issues and potential burdens, and it's those which have to be weighed in a case-specific analysis. I wasn't conceding that the mere fact of the subpoena imposes, quote, an Article II burden. I think that's, that's the distinction I would, I would, I would draw. Um, and again, getting back to the language question, I, I, again, it's the DOJ's language that calls for a stringent showing that a request is directly relevant to central issues at trial and specific charging decisions. And again, very simply, as a practical matter, no court and no prosecutor could, are, could meet that standard because in a grand jury, one is not thinking about charging decisions or central issues at trial. And that's why I think the simple language that the DOJ is, is applying in its new heightened showing standard is just not workable. Justice Kagan? Uh, Mr. Dunn, on, on the question of the possible distinction between state prosecutors and federal prosecutors, the president's lawyers have urged that there's a legal difference arising from the supremacy clause. And I don't think we've talked about that argument yet. What, what is your response to that? I think the response, Your Honor, is uh, I, I alluded to it before, and I think what, all it means is that there is a, uh, a balance to be struck between, in this case of state prosecutors, the supremacy clause concerns against the rights of states under their police powers and the concepts of uh, federalism and the, the requirements of the Tenth Amendment to allow the states to exercise their, their rights, uh, especially in the criminal context, which um, you know, are, are so important. So I think that that's the parallel to the, the balancing in, this, in the federal prosecutor context but I think it's even more important, given the federalism concerns and the fact that, you know, state prosecutors, of course, um, not only do they have the reserved police power of the states, but in, in context of criminal investigations, a large body of criminal conduct is only prosecutable by the states. So that's the thing that has to be uh, balanced here. Justice Gorsuch? Nothing further. Thank you, Chief. Justice Kavanaugh? Uh, thank you, Chief Justice. Uh, I just wanted to... Uh, ask again, uh, deferral of the investigation until after the presidency, assuming statute of limitations issues were solved, which is a big assumption, I understand. Uh, can you tick off the concerns you would have about that so that we have those clear? Yes, yes, uh, Justice Kavanaugh. Again, it's uh, point number one would be the putting aside statute of limitations concern, which I don't think one can discount here because I don't think it's been addressed. Um, uh, you know, ever obviously by this court uh, in, in this context, and that's what we're—that's our paramount concern, to be honest, at this point, because the clock is ticking. But even if that were to be addressed um, somehow, uh, the, the risk of you know over time by waiting uh, of losing evidence and losing witnesses and that kind of thing is a, a very real risk. Again, I think the OLC Moss memo address that expressly uh, in, in saying that a grand jury proceeding should be allowed to proceed. But secondly, here, and it's not unusual, uh, since there are other third parties uh, at issue in the investigation, um, requiring us to delay uh, because a president is still in office as to those third parties in, in gathering uh, important evidence could yield them being above the law if the statute of limitations runs as to them. Thank you. Mr. Mr. Dunn, would you like a minute or two to wrap up? Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Um, Your Honors, the issue presented here today is extremely narrow, but extremely important. We have a state investigation that's well-founded, 
implicates no official conduct or executive privilege, involves a variety of third parties, faces serious time constraints, and has been found to impose no Article II burdens. These facts put our subpoena well within the scope of legal process permitted by this court for generations, indeed back to 1807. Past decisions have consistently found that courts already have robust tools to protect presidents from abusive claims or demands. There's no need here to upend precedent or to write a new rule that undermines federalism, especially when such a rule would create a risk that American presidents, as well as third parties, could unwittingly end up above the law. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Mr. Seculo, you have two minutes for rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, let me start with this, and there's some agreement. Uh, the New York District Attorney, New York County District Attorney, acknowledges that uh, their subpoena implicates Article II issues and burdens. They also agree that there is harms that uh, could rise to the presidency. We say those harms have actually existed. The other aspect of this is the ordering. Who carries the burden here? That seems to be the uh, issue that's left open. This court's decision in Cheney answered that uh, very clearly, and it said that the exacting standard is carried by the party requesting the information. So it would be carried by the respondent in this particular case. There has been no showing and no findings of heightened need standards being met here. And I think it's, again, also important to remember, and I think this came up in the context of uh, earlier questioning, there's a different stigma that attaches to criminal process than civil litigation. And I don't think that stigma should be ignored uh, in a case like this. But the irony of all of this is that the House of Representatives and the district attorney issued essentially the same subpoenas to the same custodian for the same records. The House said it wants the record so it can legislate, not for law enforcement reasons. The district attorney says he wants the same records for law enforcement reasons. He has no legislative authority. But what's really happening here could not be clearer. The presidency is being harassed and undermined with improper process that was issued, in our view, for illegitimate reasons. The copying of the subpoena speaks to that. The framers saw this coming. And they structured the Constitution to protect the president from this encroachment. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.